0: Chapter Twenty Six of the Black Moth This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. The Black Moth by Georgette Hare. Chapter Twenty Six My Lord Rides to Frustrate His Grace. My Lord yawned most prodigiously and let fall the spectator his eyes roved towards the clock, and noted with disgust that the hands pointed to half after five. He sighed and picked up the rambler. His host and hostess were visiting some miles distant, and were not likely to be back until late, so my lord had a long dull evening in front of him, which he relished not at all. Lady O'Hara had tried to induce him to accompany them, promising that he would meet no one he knew, but he had for once been prudent and refused steadfastly. So Milady, after pouting crossly at him and assuring him that he was by far the most obstinate and disagreeable man that she had ever come across, not excepting her husband, who, to be sure, had been quite prodigiously annoying all day, relented, told him she understood perfectly, and even offered to kiss him to make up for her monstrous ill humor. Jack accepted the offer promptly, waved farewell to her from the porch and returned to the empty drawing-room to while away the time with two numbers of the spectator and his own thoughts till dinner, which was to be later than usual to-day, on account of an attack of vapours which had seized the cook. His thoughts were too unpleasant to be dwelt on. Everything in his world seemed to have gone awry. So he occupied himself with what seemed to him a particularly uninteresting number of the spectator. The sun had almost disappeared and very soon it became too dark to read. No candles having been brought as yet, my lord, very unromantically, went to sleep in his chair. Whether he would have eventually snored is not known, for not more than a quarter of an hour afterwards the butler roused him with the magic words, "'Dinner is served, sir.' Carstairs turned his head lazily. "'What's that you say, James?' "'Dinner is served, sir,' repeated the man and held the door wide for him to pass out. "'Faith! I'm glad to hear it.' My lord rose leisurely and pulled his cravat more precisely into position. Although he was to be alone, he gave his costume a touch here and there, and flicked a speck of dust from one great cuff with his elegant lace handkerchief. He strolled across the old panelled hall to the dining-room, and sat down at the table— the curtains were drawn across the windows, and clusters of candles in graceful silver holders were arranged on the table, shedding a warm light on to the white damask and the shining covers. The footman presented a fish, and my lord permitted a little to be put on his plate. The butler desired to know if Mr. Carr would drink claret or burgundy or ale. Mr. Carr would drink claret. A sirloin of beef next made its appearance, and went away considerably smaller." Then before my lord was spread an array of dishes. Partridges flanked one end, a pasty stood next, a cream, two chickens, a duck, and a ham of noble proportions. My lord went gently through. The butler desired to know if Mr. Carr would drink a glass of burgundy. He exhibited a dusty bottle. My lord considered it through his eyeglass and decided in favor. He sipped reflectively and waved the ham away. Sweetmeats appeared before him, and a soup while plump pigeons were uncovered at his elbow. One was whipped deftly on to his plate, and as he took up his knife and fork to carve it, a great scuffling sounded without, angry voices being raised in expostulation, and, above all, a breathless insistent appeal from Mr. Carr or Sir Miles. My lord laid down the knife and fork and came to his feet. "'It appears I am demanded,' he said, and went to the door. It was opened for him at once and he stepped out into the hall to find Mr. Bulet trying to dodge the younger footman who was refusing to let him pass. At the sight of Carstairs, he stepped back respectfully. Mr. Boulay, hot, distraught, breathless, fell upon my lord. "'Thank God you are here, sir,' he cried. Carstairs observed him with some surprise. Mr. Bulet had been so very frigid when last they had met. "'I am glad to be at your service, sir,' he bowed. "'You have commands for me.' "'We are in terrible trouble,' almost moaned the other. "'Betty bade me to come and find you, or failing you Sir miles, for none other can help us.' Carstairs' glance grew sharper. "'Trouble? Not—' "'But I forget my manners. We shall talk more at ease in here.' He led Mr. Belay into the morning-room. Belay thrust a paper into his hands. "'Diana went riding this afternoon, and only her horse returned, with this attached to the pommel.' read it sir read it diana carstairs strode over to the light and devoured the contents of the single sheet with eager eyes they were not long and they were very much to the point mr Bulet may haply recall to mind a certain mr everard of bath whose addresses to miss Bulet were cruelly repulsed he regrets having now to take the matter into his own hands and trusts to further his acquaintance with mr Boulay, at some future date, when Miss Boulay, shall, he trusts, have become Mrs. Everard. Jack crumpled the paper furiously in his hands, grinding out a startling oath. "'Insolent cur!' "'Yes, yes, sir. But what will that avail my daughter? I have come straight to you, for my sister is convinced you know this Everard, and can tell me where to seek them.' Carstairs clapped a hand on his shoulder. "'Never fear, Mr. Bulle. I PLEDGE YOU MY SOUL SHE SHALL BE FOUND THIS VERY NIGHT. YOU KNOW WHERE HE HAS TAKEN HER, YOU DO, YOU ARE SURE. BACK TO HIS EARTH I'LL LAY MY LIFE, TIS EVER HIS CUSTOM. HE STRODE TO THE DOOR, FLUNG IT WIDE, AND SHOT CLEAR, CRISP DIRECTIONS AT THE FOOTMAN. SEE TO IT THAT MY MARE IS SETTLED IN TEN MINUTES, AND BLUE DEVIL harness TO YOUR MASTER'S CURRICLE. DON'T STAND STARING, GO, AND SEND SALTER TO ME. THE FOOTMAN SCUTTLED AWAY pausing only to inform my lord that Salter was not in. Carstairs remembered that he had given Jim leave to visit his Mary at Fittering, and crushed out another oath. He sprang up the stairs, Mr. Boulay following breathlessly. In his room, struggling with his boots, he put a few questions. Mr. Boulay related the whole tale, dwelling mournfully on the excellent references for Harper he had received from Sir Hugh Grandison. Jack hauled at his second boot— "'Tracy himself, of course,' he fumed, adjusting his spurs. "'Pray, Mr. Carr, who is this scoundrel? "'Is it true that you know him?' "'Andover,' answered Jack from the depths of the guard-rope. "'Damn the fellow! "'Where has he put my cloak?' "'This to the absent Jim, and not the Duke.' "'Andover! "'Not—surely not the Duke!' cried Mr. Boulay. "'I know of no other, at last.' He emerged and tossed a heavy, many-caped coat onto the bed. Now, sir, your attention for one moment. He was buckling on his sword as he spoke and not looking at the other man. Tracy will live born die, Miss Bulle, off to the Andover Court, seven miles beyond Wincham to the southwest. Your horse, I take it, is not fresh. He knew Mister Bulle's horse. I have ordered the curicle for you. I will ride on at once by short cuts. "'for there is not a moment to be lost.' "'The Duke of Andover!' interrupted Mr. Boulay. "'The Duke of Andover! "'Why do you think he purposes to marry my daughter?' Jack gave a short, furious laugh. (laughs) "'Aye, as he married all the others!' Mr. Boulay winced. "'Sir, pray, why should you say so?' "'I perceive you do not know his grace. "'Perchance you have heard of Devil Belmanoir.' Then the little man paled. "'Good God! Mr. Carr, tis not he!' Carstairs stares, caught up his hat and whip. "'Aye, Mr. Boulay, tis indeed he. Now, perhaps, you appreciate the necessity for haste?' Mr. Boulay's eyes were open at last. "'For God's sake, Mr. Carr! After them!' "'Tis what I intend, sir. You will follow as swiftly as possible. "'Yes, yes, but do not wait for anything. Can you reach Andover in time?' "'I reach Andover to-night,' was the grim answer. "'And you, sir, you know the road?' "'I will find out. Only go, Mr. Carr. Do not waste time. I implore you.' Jack struggled into his riding-coat, clapped his hat on to his head, and with his grace of Andover's sword tucked beneath his arm, went down the stairs three and four at a time, and hurried out on to the drive, where the groom stood waiting with Jenny's bridle over his arm. Carstairs cast a hasty glance at the girths and sprang-up. The mare sidled and fidgeted, fretting to be gone, but was held in with a hand of iron while her master spoke to the groom. "'You must drive Mr. Boulay to Andover Court as fast as you can. It is a matter of life and death. You know the way.' The amazed groom collected his wits with difficulty. "'Roughly, sir.' "'That will do. Mr. Boulay will know. Drive your damnedest man. Sir Miles won't mind. You understand?' Jack's word was law in the O'Hara household. "'Yes, sir,' answered the man, and touched his hat. On the word he saw the beautiful straining mare leap forward, and the next moment both horse and rider were swallowed into the gloom. "'Well, I'm daunt!" exploded the groom, and turned to fetch the curicle. Across the stretch of moorland went Jack at a gallop, Jenny speeding under him like the wind, and seeming to catch something of her master's excitement. Low, over her neck he bent, holding the Duke's sword across his saddle-bows with one hand and with the other guiding her, so he covered some three miles. He reined in then and forced her to a canter, saving her strength, for the long distance ahead of them. She was in splendid condition, glorying in the unrestrained gallop across the turf, and although she was too well-mannered to pull on the rein, Carstairs could see by the eager twitching of her ears how she longed to be gone over the ground. He spoke soothingly to her, and guided her on to the very lane where Diana had ridden that afternoon. She fell into a long, easy stride that seemed to eat up the ground. Now they were off the lane, riding over a field to join another road leading west. A hedge cut them off, but the mare gathered her legs beneath her and soared over, alighting as gracefully as a bird and skimming on again up the road. Her responsive ears flickered as he praised her and pulled her up. "'Easy now, Jenny, easy!' She was trembling with excitement, but she yielded to his will and trotted quietly for perhaps another half-hour. Carstairs rose and fell rhythmically in the saddle, taking care to keep his spurred heels from her glossy sides. He guessed the time to be about seven o'clock, and his brows drew together, worriedly. Jenny was made of steel and lightning, but would she manage it? He had never tested her powers as he was about to now, and he dared not allow her much breathing space every minute was precious if he were to reach Andover before it was too late. Assuming that Tracy had captured Diana at four, or thereabouts, he reckoned that it should take a heavy coach four hours or more to reach Andover. Jinny might manage it in two and a half hours, allowing for short cuts, in which case he ought to arrive not long after the others. He was tortured by the thought of Diana at the mercy of a man of Tracy's caliber. Diana in terror, Diana despairing, unconsciously he pressed his knees against the smooth flank, and once again Jenny fell into that long, swift stride. She seemed to glide over the ground with never a jar nor a stumble. Carstairs was careful not to irk her in any way, only keeping a guiding, restraining hand on the rein, and for the rest letting her go as she willed. On and on they sped, as the time lagged by, sometimes through leafy lanes, at others over fields and rough tracks. Not for nothing had carstairs roamed this country for two years almost every path was familiar to him he never took a wrong turn never swerved never hesitated on and on past sleeping villages and lonely homesteads skirting woods riding up hill and down dale never slackening his hold on the rein never taking his eyes off the road before him except now and then to throw a glance to the side on the lookout for some hidden bypath after the first hour a dull pain in his shoulder reminded him of his wound. Still troublesome, he set his teeth and pressed on still faster. The mare caught her foot on a loose stone and stumbled. His hand held her together, the muscles standing out like ribbed steel. His voice encouraged her and he made her walk again. This time she did not fret against the restraint. He shifted the sword under his bridle hand and passed the right down her steaming neck crooning to her softly beneath his breath. She answered with a low, throbbing whinny. She could not understand why he desired her to gallop on, braving unknown terrors in the dark. All she could know was that it was his wish. It seemed also that he was pleased with her. She would have cantered on again, but he made her walk for perhaps another five minutes, until they were come to a stretch of common he knew well. It was getting late, and he pressed her with his knee, adjuring her to do her best, and urging her to gallop, leaning right forward, the better to pierce the darkness ahead. A gorse bush loomed before them, and Jenny shied at it, redoubling her pace. With hand and voice he soothed her, and on they sped. He judged the time to be now about half-past eight, and knew that they must make the remaining miles in an hour. Even now the coach might have arrived, and beyond that he dared not think. Another half-hour crept by, and he could feel the mare's breath coming short and fast, and reined in again, this time to a canter. He was off the moor now, on a road he remembered well, and knew himself to be not ten miles from Wincham. five more miles as the crow flies. He knew he must give Jenny another rest, and pulled up, dismounting and going to her head. Her legs were trembling, and the sweat rolled off her satin skin. She dropped her nose into his hand, sobbingly. He rubbed her ears and patted her, and she lipped his cheek lovingly, breathing more easily. Up again, then, and forward once more, skimming over the ground. Leaving Wencham on his right, Carstairs cut west and then northwest on the high road now, leading to Andover, only two more miles to go. Jenny stumbled again and broke into a walk. Her master tapped her shoulder, and she picked up her stride again. She was almost winded, and he knew it, but he had to force her onwards, she responded gallantly to his hand although her breath came sobbingly and her great soft eyes were blurred at last the great iron gates were in view he could see them through the dusk firmly shut he pulled up and walked on looking for a place in the hedge where jenny might push through end of chapter 26 recording by terra mendoza phoenix arizona september 2011